This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, yeah, this could be a breakdown in the global supply chain when it comes to technology. Folks, sit down, listen to this story. It's the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week about the attack by Chinese spies that reached almost 30 U.S. companies, including Amazon and Apple, by compromising America's technology supply chain. And this is according to extensive interviews with government and corporate sources. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Um, great story, a lot of reporting, uh, a deep dive. Tell us about exactly what happened. So more more than a year's worth of reporting went into this story. The the two writers, uh, Jordan Robertson and Mike Riley, cover uh, cybersecurity. Uh, they're both investigative reporters with Bloomberg. We had the utmost confidence in their reporting and their writing abilities. We set a very high bar for this story, um, and they they met it. With, and that was part of the reason that we you know once we were ready to publish the story, we published it. The what this story is ultimately about. The public is mostly aware with with what are called software hacking. Right. This is different, and it's far more troubling. It's called hardware hacking, and what the story is ultimately about is a compromise of a company called Supermicro, which manufactures in China. It's a U.S. based company, and subcontractors were basically tapped by. Uh, PLA spies with the Chinese military to actually implant chips on super micro server motherboards that were bound for America. And so what does this mean? I mean, you know, you, you had a metaphor earlier when you and I have been going back and forth and seeing each other across the newsroom for the past couple of days, the conveyor belt. I love that. So when you think about America's relationship with China, we outsourced basically all of our technology hardware to China long ago. 70% plus basically comes from China, right? So when you think about it, and I think if, if you really zoom the camera out, what does this mean? Well, this is a great vulnerability for us. If China makes all the hardware and was able to actually do this, you know, and granted, I want to be very specific. This, the events in this story happened in 2014 and 2015. At the time, Supermicro supplied 900 customers, only... As many as 30, according to our sources, were, were actually affected by this. But it had the capacity of being able to reach customers like the Apples and Amazons of the world simply by – this was like the, the first little Lego block in right. this gigantic global supply chain, right? So that to me is the significance of this. It's a, it, according to our sources, this was a Chinese military attack, and it's a unit within the Chinese military that, according to our sources, has been a known issue – to U.S. officials and government for a while. And they've been watching these guys, and this was something that was very sophisticated, a next-level attack that they did not expect China to be able to do. Let's put this out there right front and center. What has Amazon said? What has Apple said? What has the Chinese government said? So, I, you know, one of the things that I think we're, we can all be proud of working at Bloomberg News is that we're transparent. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the companies offered um, a very firm denials. And we ran those in full because 
um, they have a right to have those denials published with the story. It all, it basically, it comes down to we had the utmost confidence in our sources. We're talking 17 sources with direct knowledge of the compromise of Supermicro. These are completely independent individuals in different sectors. We have people in U.S. government, U.S. intelligence, within company insiders. Mm-hmm. So we, once we actually were able to like do that, and then over the course of this project, speaking to 100, more than 100 people about the nature of this story... We, we felt that we had it was in the public's interest that we make people aware because people are simply not looking for, for this sort of threat. With the stakes that as they are right now, it, it, you know, we, we published it when the story was ready. But I think it's a really important backdrop to the, an overall conversation that's happening right now about sort of the relationship between China and America. There's a lot of things that are that's talked about, but this once you kind of understand this, it sort of becomes a little bit more. Bigger backdrop. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, part of your role as the editor of Bloomberg Business Week is you look across that entire landscape. You guys have written extensively, even this week, about the trade war. Obviously, some about NAFTA, but moving on to China, which is really the next leg in this. Put this in the context, if you can, for this global relationship, this sort of complicated relationship, to say the least, between the U.S. and China. Right I, now. I think it's really complicated because of what I said earlier. Seventy percent of computer networking electronic stuff that we use comes from China. So there, there becomes a bigger question. And part of what we, we, we have already heard from the Trump administration is that there will have to be new supply chains that come out of something like this. But you can also see that this is why tariffs directed at hardware and networking equipment are, are perhaps there. No one's actually said the reason right. why, but now we ha- perhaps have an, in, an insight into why. Well, and it's that balance between you know technology companies looking for an abundant supply that they have kind of outsourced and have willing to kind of play down the risk factor as a result of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and because this is this is the cost of doing business is basically one of the conclusions that one of the sources says at the end uh, end of the article. We made a compromise. It was a devil's bargain. Yeah. a long time ago. Where we said we need these parts, they're essential for business. We can't, we're, we're willing to pay this much. That's how we've ended up where we've ended up. You know, this is it is a, a troubling story. There, I do think that there is a, a some insight um, that I think you can also get from it, which is we've reported and the companies have denied, but Amazon and Apple were both able to detect this. Yeah. yeah. They, so they had a way of looking for it, and other companies need to know how to do this as well. It's a fascinating story. So much information there. Uh, A must read, no doubt about it. Jill Weber, thank you so much. Editor at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is the cover story for the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine out this tomorrow. And you can read it, of course, at uh, on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. A lot of folks have been trying to figure out what they need to know about the pending confirmation of, or the confirmation vote, I should say, uh, of Judge Brett Kavanaugh for the seat on the Supreme Court. Craig Gordon is Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in our nation's capital. So, Craig, what's the latest? What do we need to know? 
Well, the very, very latest is that a uh, Democratic senator from North Dakota named Heidi Heitkamp just came out and said she will vote no on Kavanaugh. This is unlikely to affect the final outcome, but does suggest that there are still some Democrats uh, that are, are many Democrats that are still very reluctant to, to get on board with Kavanaugh. There are a few uh, Democratic Senate candidates and senators like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, and Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, who are thought by the Republicans to be possible yeses because they're facing very, very tough reelection votes in states that Donald Trump won. Uh, Joe Donnelly from Indiana came out last week, said he was a no. Uh, they're still hoping to change his mind, but that was what he said then. And then Heitkamp today, again, a no. I think that really what that mostly just tells us is that for all the momentum that seems to be building behind Kavanaugh's uh, possible confirmation, uh, a, a red state Democrat in a very tough reelection does not feel the need to get to get on board, uh, given all the questions that have been raised about Kavanaugh's past behavior. So that's that's pretty significant. Craig, I'm and Heidkamp not- notably, right. sorry, I just wanted to mention, did vote to confirm uh, Justice Gorsuch. Is that right? That's correct. And had one of my favorite quotes of this whole period before uh, after the Ford testimony when someone asked her about Kavanaugh and she said I don't know there's a lot of lawyers out there <laughs> so I think she was signaling all along she was she sort of uh, was was really not fully on board so the state of play really is Mitch McConnell has called a vote uh, for tomorrow we think it'll probably be tomorrow morning uh, that is you'll see referred to places as a cloture vote a test vote it's actually going to be I think in the end the vote sometimes they take these test votes and people can vote yes in the test vote and no on the final vote I, I think we're Long past that here. I think the vote tomorrow, when we see if uh, if Brett Kavanaugh has enough votes to get through the Senate, will tell us whether he will be on the Supreme Court or not. I just don't think anyone is going to do that old trick of I'll let the vote happen, but I'll, I might vote no later. So that's a big moment. And um, and right now it's the same three people we always talk about, Jeff Flake, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, that are still uh, officially listing themselves as undecided at this point. Um one thing we have learned, uh, certainly in the most recent uh, election cycle, political cycle, Craig, is that never underestimate public sentiment. I'm just curious about uh, the public outcries here, whether or not that's going to have any kind of significance uh, in this voting here. Well, there's a very interesting thing that's happened in the week or so since uh, since uh, Professor Ford's testimony, which is that um, in a lot of ways, uh, Republicans are actually sort of rallying behind Kavanaugh, Republican voters. Um, we've seen this in the polls. There's There's been a lot of enthusiasm behind the Democrats heading into the midterms. There was a poll out from uh, NPR and PBS just yesterday uh, showing that the Republicans have kind of closed that gap and most people are, are crediting Kavanaugh. Now, look, you know, p- people might have different opinions about uh, Brett Kavanaugh and such, but through a lot of Republicans, and this is something Donald Trump has been trying to stoke a little bit with some of his comments, you know, there's sort of the the image in the mind of a lot of Republicans that this is a good man who's being besmirched by sort of, a, a you know, like a, a liberal mob. And, you know, nobody's been able to corroborate these stories. And so why, you know, he should just get his chance to be on the Supreme Court. So as much as I think the early thinking was that Democrats would be energized by this, by this notion of uh, especially women voters and, you know, uh, that uh, Kavanaugh's behavior that day and his allegations about his past behavior. I think we've seen a little bit of a backlash Mm. where Kavanaugh and the Republicans are actually getting a little bit of a boost among Republican voters. And we should point out that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and now uh, Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Charles Grassley both holding a news conference now uh, confirming that a vote 
will be held tomorrow, just as we heard from Craig a minute ago. So, Craig, uh, you have responsibility for things in Washington and around this administration beyond this confirmation hearing. Anything else we need to know that's happening in Washington right now or really all eyes on this? <laughs> Wait, no, come this on. Is, it's all this, about this, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is kind of blocking out the sun right now. In fact, really all the other business inside Congress has uh, has sort of ground to a halt. So yeah. we all, you know, all eyes are, are on this hearing. And of course, we also know what happened last night is that the FBI filed its, its sort of report on its uh, the nine interviews that it did related to Professor Ford's story and the other allegations. The the Republican side of the House, including the White House itself, has said there's no no corroborating evidence in those interviews. We haven't heard too much from the Democrats about what's in those reports. But uh, it, it does seem uh, in the early going anyway that if Democrats are hoping for a bit of a silver bullet there, that's probably not going to materialize. In the era of needed transparency, any chance that FBI report will make its way out to the public? Just get about 20 seconds. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, d- I don't think so. I, I think we'll get it'll be described to us by a lot of the Democrats who get a chance to see it, probably mostly after the vote. But the full release, I would be surprised. Craig Gordon, Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in D.C. So we're going to talk a little bit about places as it pertains to the REIT market. Uh, And let me just set the backdrop here. We've got equity markets selling off today. You've got volatility spiking uh, as the route and treasury is kind of taking yields to multi-year highs, and that has fueled, blah, 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 I can't speak much, has fueled a repricing of uh, risk assets. So we're seeing this kind of dynamic play in the markets. I want to get into what impact that that may be having on REITs. Our next guest is uh, Gary Wotasek. He's back with us, president and CEO at Cyrus One. Wojo, usually in Dallas, uh, but in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. By the way, uh, the Cyrus One Reed has rallied nearly 30% since early March. Nice to have you back with us. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me back. I do want to get into the higher rate environment, what this might mean for you, but just remind everybody the kind of REIT space that you're playing within. Sure. We're a digital REIT, so we basically build and manage uh, specialized uh, real estate facilities that house computers, uh, which are customer store uh, computers that basically power the internet. I have to say, when I, when I first read this, I was like, digital REIT feels like a contradiction in terms, because yeah. I thought we were talking about real estate. This is when you Old find out that Carol Masser is smarter than I am. But, I mean, it is a booming business. I mean, we've seen so many investors pour into this from the public market perspective, where obviously you are, but private equity as well. I mean, this right. has been a massive area of growth. Is that growth going to slow down anytime soon like what do you see around the corner here no it um so you're right it has uh, definitely attracted a lot of capital there's basically been about 70 billion dollars of value creation made from the equity side in this over the last decade and which is about as long as the cloud has been around so the cloud is only about a hundred billion dollar business right now hmm. out of a little over trillion dollar uh spend that's going to get up to 30 or 40 percent. So we're still in the early stages of this. So I expect actually accelerating growth over the next five or 10 years versus the last 10. I mean, everybody is collecting information, doing everything through computers, uh, and all of that data needs to go somewhere. So whether it's, you know, within mainframes or what have you on your own facilities or it's up in the cloud, you're providing the space for all of this stuff. Absolutely. Or Any, investing in those companies that are providing the space. We No, no. We are actually building the space for those facilities. So anything that creates, you know, any type of data. So whether it's your mobile phones, whether it's your electric systems in your house, whether it's, you know, your driverless cars, anything that creates data ultimately finds its way into data center. And we're basically just building these huge repositories. How, how immune is it to an economic downturn? 
Um, I, I, I don't think much. I think, well, in general, I mean, anytime the economy is going to, uh, you know, contract during a recession, it's not going to be good for business. But in general, you basically have to come up with a really credible short thesis why there's going to be less data invented tomorrow than there is today. And that's really hard to do. So, Woj, I've got to ask you, power has got to be a big issue that comes up here, you know, as you're building these facilities. This is not, you know, you got to flip the lights on and, you know, throw some shelves around and create a shopping mall. These are very power intensive businesses. How much do you think about that? How much does that factor into cost, et cetera? Oh, it's, it's by far and away the largest variable cost that we have. And, and it's significant. Um, I mean, for some of our larger facilities, they basically consume the equivalent of around 50 or 60,000 homes equivalent power. Wow. So it's, they're massive. And so you focus on it all the time because to the extent that we could make a more efficient facility and uh, save, uh, save money, and we pass it on to our, uh, our consumers. So what about the higher rate environment? What does that do for a REIT? That certainly is the story that we often talk about uh, and the impact negatively. It's going to cost you know, oh, more to sure. either access capital to do what you need to do to build these centers. Yeah. It, you know, look, we're, we've been caught up in it. Earlier in this year, it was the same yeah. thing. Um, you know, we definitely trade inversely to, uh, you know, to the interest rates just because REITs in general are considered uh, fixed income you know, type instruments, right? And so, uh, so we're, we're trading inversely to it. But what you have in this space that you don't have in the other REITs is you have a lot of growth. We're growing organically, you know, close to 20% a year. That's the easiest way to combat growth. And just, you know, just last week, we we're actually upgraded by uh, Standard & Poor's and we became investment grade. Uh, so, so actually, while the 10-year treasuries have probably moved up 50, 60 points, our, our actual funding rate, if we were to issue a bond today, has probably dropped you know, more than that. Is your growth slowing at all, though, in terms of, I'm just looking at revenue growth quarter over quarter. Um, is it slowing at all? No, no. If you look, like, in the first half of this year, uh, we sold more in the first half of this year than we did all of last year. So from a bookings perspective, it's it's actually accelerating, and uh, I don't see that slowing down. You get quarter to quarter, you know, vagaries in it, but the broader trends are really up and to the right. And you're talking about growth in terms of revenues? Yes. So we live in an age where everyone wants to know where HQ2 is going to be. And obviously one of the big questions about that is just sheer space, power, as, we, as we've talked about. Geographically, I won't, but I won't make you guess where HQ2 is going to be because no one knows but Jeff Bezos probably. But geographically, what's attractive here? Where are you looking to build? Where are the, the good opportunities here? Well, we are in basically all the major metropolitan areas that are the major internet hubs in the in the country. So we're deployed everywhere data exists today. But, you know, from a personal perspective, Texas got two of the 20 spots on there. So we have a one in 10 shot of getting it. And <laughs> we're the largest provider in Texas. So that'd be good for business. Right? For HQ, HQ2 would be good for oh, business, uh, right? Tremendous. Tremendous. Right. Yeah. But does it matter where you locate your facilities? It's data. Can it be anywhere? So do you go for the lowest kind of priced marketplace to build something? It depends on the application, right? So there's there's certain applications, say high-frequency trading, which yeah. is really important to get to be close. close to the uh, matching engines. Um, and then there's other other applications that have data where it's not as latency-dependent. So anytime you're storing any photos or videos or anything that you don't see that you know that frequently on, say, like an iCloud somewhere, that could be really, really far away because you're not really concerned about accessing it immediately. Is there any reason or need to move to other markets outside the United States? Just got about 20 seconds. Yes, we just closed our first acquisition in Europe. So, uh, so we, we've got big plans for launching uh, all throughout Europe. Nice to have you here. Great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Gary Wotasek, a.k.a. Wojo. That's what we call him. President and CEO of Cyrus One, based in Dallas, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. 
So if you tune into this show at all, you've probably picked up on the fact that Carol Master and I, we like books. We do. We really like books. We love having authors come and visit us, especially when they have a smart new idea. Scott Belsky, he's the chief product officer over at Adobe, founder of a company called Behance. But most importantly for our discussion today, he's the author of a new book called The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. He is with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive studio uh, here on the East Coast, spends most of his time out in Silicon Valley. Scott, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on the show. So the middle, we talk about beginnings and ends. Those are sort of the sexy parts of, you know, (laughs) starting a company, starting and selling a company. Middle's a little trickier. Tell us how you sort of define it and how you got to this idea. Well, the middle is a period of extraordinary volatility uh, composed of all of these valleys where you are in this endless period of ambiguity, uncertainty, anxiety, working in complete anonymity, no real rewards yet. People don't know what you're doing yet. And then these occasional highs, these moments where something seems to work, something's getting traction, and then suddenly you go back into a low again. And it's this really crazy volatility. I think the myth of a big venture is that it just it's really fun at conception gets really hard and gets progressively better that's not really what happens and and the funny thing is we're we are our worst at the lows and the highs at the lows we make decisions out of fear and at the highs we you know we just start to um we just start to like think that the stuff that worked is attributed to the things that we did as Mm. opposed to like timing and other market factors specific examples of folks where you see they're in that messy middle and trying to figure things out well when you talk to, you know, in the book, I talk to folks like Joe Gebbia, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, who talks yeah. about the first two iterations of Airbnb before the one that we know today and kind of how he endured the, you know, keeping the team long enough together just to figure it out. Um, and, uh, and then you talk to people in large companies that are in, uh, embarking on a two to three year project when everyone's always measuring everything on a quarterly cadence. And how do you actually um, short circuit the reward system and keep people engaged def- despite the lack of uh, near-term benefits. Well, you have a chapter, don't optimize for the best deal now at the expense of long-term outcome, right? It's very hard when you're like focusing on so much stuff right in front of you that you have to take care of to not get lost in that and forget about what the long-term goal is or what the long-term view is. I think that's that's true. And and, uh, another theme I took away was how important it is to narrate your team through the journey and merchandise progress to them. Communication. I love the narrative, but (laughs) the narrative piece, that's exactly where I was going next. This idea of building your narrative feels so important right now, especially in the age of social media, word of mouth, digital word of mouth, really. Uh, So how do you do that? Well, the narrative is important in, in many different ways. I mean, first of all, on a journey, you know, whether in a big company or in a startup, uh, it's almost like driving a car for 10 days with the windows blacked out and your backseat passengers getting really antsy. You <laughs> yeah. have to narrate the journey. What state lines are we crossing? What milestones are we making? That's what keep uh, keeps us engaged and frankly tolerant of the volatility. But it also is a, um, is a way of creating like a compass for your team and all the decisions you're going to make in building your product and business. And I talk in the book about um, my early days working with Garrett Camp, who's the co-founder of Uber, was the CEO of a company called StumbleUpon yeah. that he had purchased back from eBay. And I was the new CEO of a company I created called Behance. We were partnering together. And then after a meeting, he whips out a notebook and shows me this mock-up 
of this idea for getting cars on demand. And he was debating between, is this everyone's personal driver? Is this like an aspirational brand and product? Or is it taxis on demand? Is it something that's accessible to everyone? And he was having this debate before there was even any product team developed, before there was ever any team together for the idea of Uber to begin with, really. And it was that sort of, and he, of course, chose everyone's private driver. Yes. And that became this like aspirational superpower of getting a car you know, in a way you could never have done before. But it's that narrative that you set the bit for in the beginning that defines the rest of the journey. Well, and we were talking, one of the companies that you have worked with as well as Sweet Green, well-known to a lot of us here in New York. We both love it. We both <laughs> love it. And part of, I mean, they have a real narrative around what yeah. they're doing as well, you know, locally sourced yep. products and, and and things like that. So it is... It's, it, certainly pervasive across the companies you've worked with. And it's interesting because once you have a clean vision in the beginning, like we're going to locally source our food and also Sweet Green, we locally source the designers for the stores and the spaces. The hard part though, in the middle volatility is actually consistently practicing those principles mm. when it becomes very seductive to not do so. When problems arise, opportunities arise, we, that's when we add complexity into the products. That's when we make exceptions. We start to marginalize what makes us special. But great brands are preserved by having that courage to be consistent. Because well, one of the things you say is make one subtract, subtraction for every addition. I thought that was a really <laughs> pithy way of saying it's a, it. It's a quick way of making sure that you're not you know, having what they call feature creep in a product. But it's interesting in a time when retail, the retail space in general is having so much troubles because I think there's not always such a clear message about who somebody is anymore. Um, I just think it's, you know, you've got to know what your brand is and what the message is. A hundred percent. And you have to consistently make sure you're checking with the customer and having and seeing the brand through their eyes as opposed to your own Kool-Aid. I like to always remind teams. I mean, if you really want to know what your brand is, just look on Twitter. Look what people are saying. That is the source of truth these days. And in an overly complicated world, I don't know for me as a consumer, simple is better. Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> Scott Belsky, you are the chief product officer over at Adobe. More important for our purposes today, author of a great book, The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. Uh, pick it up. It's a great read. It is a great read. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes uh, to go until the closing bell rings on this Thursday afternoon. Let's get to the drive to the close. Eric Clark with us, Portfolio Manager at AccuVest Global Advisors, based in San Diego, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. His Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, by the way, beating most of its peers over the past year and also so far year-to-date here in 2018. Nice to have you back with us. Nice to see you. I got to ask you about the volatility today. Should we be concerned? The talk is... Concerns about higher rates, repricing of risk assets. How do you see it? You know, uh, well, volatility was so low that it probably had to come up a little bit. I'm I'm watching to see if we kind of break a downtrend because then that that could be maybe something bigger to come. It hasn't doesn't look like it's quite done that yet. But we're just you know we were at 11. I think we're at 15 today. Last I looked, so that's still pretty pretty low in the grand scheme of things. 
Yeah. We're pretty spoiled. I think we're right at So 14. wait, are you just saying that we just needed to move around a little bit? Sometimes, what? you know, the market will, you <laughs> no, know. No, no, like I'm really trying to understand. Like, is, move it, around. Is, is there a catalyst that you see that, that makes sense fundamentally? Or is it, like you said, we need to kind of get back to more normal volatility again? Yeah, I think normal volatility. And, you know, the market was at the top end of the range. And, and there's lots of algorithms. There's lots of traders out there. They buy the bottom of the range. They sell the top of the range. You and hit a level and it news. kicks in, right? You hit a level and, and the market gets overbought and complacency is pretty high. And so sometimes all it takes is a little bit of selling to just feed on itself. So I, one of the things in, in some notes that you shared with us before uh, coming in, uh, this idea of dividend aristocrats. First of all, I just love that name. What, what does that mean? Whoever created that is a, is definitely a marketing genius, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I th- just companies, good, stable blue chip companies yeah. that have a history of paying dividends that, you know, candidly have been out of favor for right. you know, a few years. And, uh, you know, our view is when, when the risk reward is balanced, so should your, your portfolio. So give us some examples. You know, so, so we're balanced between the Amazon on the higher beta, more, you know, kind of technology consumer discretionary side. Well, let's say a Procter & Gamble or a yeah. Johnson & Johnson, you know, great, great companies, great dividend growers, um, been out of favor for a little while. So they're, they're cheaper than they've been in a long time. Um, they, they tend to do pretty well when markets um, struggle a little bit. Interest rates, they're obviously bond proxies too. So as interest rates rise, some of them, you know, kind of don't perform as well. But overall, they tend to be pretty good stabilizers when you balance it out with the, you know, the squares of the world and the Amazons and Adobes and things like that. P&G with about a 3.5% dividend yield, and we've seen almost 4% uh, five-year net growth. So we've seen some, you know, it's decent. It is. And, you know, at the later part of the cycle, and I, I'm not a believer that the cycle will just last forever indefinitely. Sometimes at, at, at that time, people will think about more stable, predictable growers rather than something that can grow 25, 30 or 40 percent. People just haven't been focused on those the, those stable growers. Do you at all see that this is a time where investors should be more offensive versus defensive or more defensive versus offensive? I think it's balanced right now. I mean, I, I am I will admit that the bull market that started in 09 will be over when we when we cross under 2475 on the S&P. There's a, that's a long way to go from where we are. Yeah. So right now, this is just a pullback within an otherwise normal uptrend. Um, you know, record consumer confidence. We got good wage growth. You know, stocks are not that far from their highs. Sentiment's pretty high. So, you know, this is, this is a normal thing. We've gotten so used to markets going straight up without much of a pause that sometimes we have to remember markets are just the madness of crowds and buying and selling. And sometimes whether it's news related or just the market's a little overheated and or an algorithm and kicks stretched in. or an algorithm kicks yeah. in and then another algorithm kicks in yeah. and next thing you know, you're down 4%. Yeah. You've got uh, some pretty big positions in retail. I'm looking at Home Depot, Dollar Tree among them. How do you, what's your sense of how retail generally is going? And those are two kind of different names. Yeah, they are. I, I mean, we're we are leaning more towards the the kind of high end slash luxury luxury rather than the the, the lower ends. You know, margins are bad. You know, for a Dollar Tree, for instance, we don't actually own Dollar Tree anymore. Oh, you don't. I don't okay. That was a that was a good kind of a tactical opportunity, and and we took it off thankfully before before they reported earnings that were that were bad. Yeah. But but the the margins for those companies are really really tough. Yeah. Home Depot's had great same store sales. You know, we own uh, VF Corp, which is Vans and Reef. Right. That's been a strong brand uh, we own tapestry which is a little bit of a contrarian coach Stuart Weitzman you know so we, ha- we 
have that le- that kind of luxury uh, feel. We've seen a lot of that. I feel like at yes. least last quarter, that certainly was the play in retail. Was the sort of specialty, higher end, you know. presumably, you know, higher margin businesses. What's interesting too, Jason did mention Dollar Tree because I think at the end of July you still had a position in it. So you've been actively changing some of your positions. Sometimes, you know, about 30% of the fund can be kind of more tactical in nature. Everything else is kind of, you know, big picture secular themes. But when we see an opportunity that's uh, that's a great brand that's on sale, sometimes it, it ends up being a, a long-term investment. And sometimes right. you just see an opportunity from a tactical side and, and you take that opportunity. Let's stick with that. What's been a great brand that's been on sale recently that you might have added to your portfolio? Um, you know, Constellation. I mean, Constellation Brands report a great number. You know, don't underestimate that CEO. We've added to that over the over the last month and a half. Um, that canopy deal really moved the needle, right? I, I mean, it, it it showed that this CEO is not just sitting back and saying, "Let's just let's just do what we always do." Yeah. He sees a trend. Grow, you know, beer sales have been a little bit slower. People talk about you know having more cannabis rather than going. The stock's been the bouncing around a lot. It can be a though. little bit volatile because because yeah. people don't necessarily they didn't love that they made the canopy deal yeah. because it you know they had to suspend the buyback and because they don't want to lose their rating. And so, you know, short-term people just push a stock down and then active research guys get a chance to buy it. Staying with, um, just quickly, uh, Coca-Cola, also in your portfolio? Also in the portfolio. Do you like, did you start buying more because of it considering um, cannabis, I think, for, for, from like the healthy perspective? We haven't, we haven't added to Coke lately, but that's, um, I mean, it, it's natural that the beverage companies... And then eventually the pharma companies yep. start to think about those kinds of things. So Coke just serves as a, as a stable, you know, kind of a dividend aristocrat that, that's kind of a stabilizer with some of the more higher beta stuff that we have. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager, AccuVest Global Advisors, based in San Diego, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.